Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. She's known for being the mother of a famous warrior and for being extraordinarily fond of snakes. She was slandered by centuries of historians, but we've activated our highly scientific subject-choosing algorithm to bring you the true story of Olympias because of her connection with the Olympics. The end. Let's talk about Olympias. But first, let's drop her into history. In 357 BCE, it's 26 years before the city of Alexandria was founded, 76 years before the library in the city of Alexandria was founded, and 309 years before it was destroyed. It's 288 years before our old friend Cleopatra was born, 372 years before our old friend Agrippina the Younger was born, and 717 years before our old friend Hypatia was born. It was also 2,378 years before today. And in 357 BCE, a teenage girl from a small kingdom married a new king, became a queen, and would become a mother who raised a great son. A quick warning before we begin. This episode inevitably includes episodes of violence and specifically violence against children, although we don't go into any real graphic detail. Just to let you know that happens if you want to preview that before you let little ears listen. And now on with the show. Polyxenia was born around the year 375 BCE, one of the daughters of King Neoptolemus of Molossia and major question mark mother, mysterious unnamed wife of King Neoptolemus. She had at least one sister and at least one brother who we will encounter later. She was born in Molossia within the kingdom of Epirus. Just like when we talked about Hypatia and to some extent Agrippina and Cleopatra were hobbled a little by both the lack of documentation about lady persons in general and the aftermath of their lives when a woman was sufficiently activated in the ancient world to become notable, you have men's reactions to that behavior to contend with in perpetuity, in which they ascribe sinister motivations to her actions or extreme interpretations of her life or lifestyle. Or simply put, her story has been modeled by propaganda and patriarchy. We could probably even call her Olympias, the queen of probably and most likely. Sometimes you have to just work around the edge and basically fill in the silhouette and you don't 100% know what happened in the middle. <laughs> I think I might have said that during Hypatia too. <laughs> so where is Epirus, land of Polyxenia's birth? It is part of modern day Greece and part of modern-day Albania. This is a rugged frontier region of the ancient Greek world. They had suffered for centuries from being in the middle of conflict after conflict. Barbarians headed toward the famous Greek city-states, but they often got distracted by the shiny things of Molossia, and they were satisfied and couldn't carry anymore, frankly, and stopped there. Hooray, said Greece. Thanks for taking the heat again. And they sipped their wine, laughed, and turned back to their party. Mm -hmm. Not fair. 
No. Not fair at all. We should probably note that at the time of her birth, actually at the time of this story, Greece wasn't actually a place yet. It was a bunch of small municipalities, small kingdoms, little clans, or maybe think of them as tribes. And Polyxenia's family was one of those. A lot of the tribes in the northern part of the, you know, what we modern people might think of Macedonia and Greece remind me a lot of the clans in Scotland. So there's like a loose confederation of tribes, for lack of a better word, and each one has its own chief. And some chiefs are more chief than other chiefs. But if you sass them, they'll become independent and fight you. Mm -hmm. But if they have a common enemy, then, oh, we'll all come together. But in between each other, they're kind of always throwing elbows for position within the larger tribal group. In addition, there was a lot of discrimination against people from their part of the country. They were considered by the more cosmopolitan people of Athens to be kind of uncouth or a lower class, very uncultured. They were kind of looked down upon by the people of Athens. The Malachians were a proud people, despite what the Athenians might have thought of them. Family history, family mythology, we all have some had them descended from Achilles. Yes, that Achilles, the one you learned about in English class, the one who had the unfortunately vulnerable heel. Demigod, the hero of Homer's Iliad, is considered by them to be one of their forefathers. Later, a purported descent from Zeus himself was added to the family tree. We'll talk about that later. But how dare they, really? Think of our family this way when actually we have divine descent. Forget royal descent. We're divine. They were a very, very proud family. That's for sure. This was a big point of pride for them. King Neoptolemus was himself named after one of the sons of Achilles. And our Polyxenia was named after the princess of Troy, who in the mythology was sacrificed for finding out and telling about Achilles' vulnerable heel. She felt guilty about it and paid the price. So they did not need to put up with their position as lesser. And to add to that, these supposedly, quote, cultured and democratic people of Athens, the women had far less rights than the women of Molotia. In Molotia, women could own property. They could be legal guardians. They could serve as a regent. They were counted as a citizen. Widows could choose their future husbands. They could broker marriage deals for their daughters. These are all rights that women of Athens didn't have. Regular lady persons could perhaps operate independently, even go outside the house alone to conduct business at the market. But those freedoms probably wouldn't have extended upward, which is the lot of princesses throughout history. You know, keep watch. Reputation is power. And the women of Molossia had another kind of power. They did. The power that the women of the time had wasn't government power. Obviously, they weren't in charge of the countries, but they had religious power. They were leaders in the religious communities. And at the time, religion and government really worked hand in hand. So if you think of it that way, yes, men are in charge of the wars and the government, but women are in charge of the thing that powers all that, which would be their faith. So she was raised in an environment where the women exhibited that kind of power. When Polyxenia was about five, uh, her grandpa, King, died, and Epirus was divided between her own papa and Uncle Erebus. 
they ruled in tandem in relative peace and tranquility, gathering some outlying tribes under their stable umbrella. That's kind of rare. Just a little side note on some of these pronunciations, you can get a modern Greek person to tell you how to pronounce something and the V's are a lot like the B's and is it Erebos or Erevos or, you know, we're going to get as close as we can without going full burrito, tornado, you know, so we're going to do the best we, we can with the pronunciation given that even among modern speakers, there's argument. There is, and it kind of shocked me. I was watching something, and they were pronouncing the country that she's going to be going to as Macedonia, and I'm like, where the heck is Macedonia? And I looked into it, and Macedonia is closer to the Greek pronunciation, but we, who have a language that springs from the Romans, pronounce it Macedonia. So they're both correct, depending on which way you're coming from. But so we don't, like you just said, burrito it. I think we should Macedonia it. So knowing that the other pronunciation exists is legitimate. We are going to go forward with the one that will probably roll off our tongue. And it's also perhaps not wrong. We just wanted to let you know that, you know, we know. (laughs) How about that for a more awkward statement than ever before? (laughs) So what was Polyxenia's life like here while the male members of her family were strategizing? Tough to know exactly, but she must have received some degree of education. She was literate, people think. At some point in her teens, Polyxenia changed her name, at least on ceremonial occasions, to Myrtle. Likely, it's either a coming-of-age name, similar to when you might pick a confirmation name, at least in the Catholic Church. I don't know if you do that in... Other religions? I I don't know. I mean, technically, Mary's part of my name, but I never really use it. Um, Well, also, maybe as part of her initiation into a, quote, cult. Now, there's been other cults associated with Polyxenia. And if you know anything about her, other than, you know, the Alexander the Great connection, what you've probably heard is that she belongs to the cult of Dionysus and is deeply associated with snake handlers. Now, I'm acknowledging that. I'm putting that to the side. We'll talk about that in a little while. But what I want to focus on is the cult of Aphrodite, to which Myrtle is sacred. And people are thinking, based on her choice of the name Myrtle, well, the plant Myrtle is sacred to both Aphrodite. In fact, her temples often have Myrtle plants around them as a dedication to the goddess. Myrtle is also sacred to the god Adonis, the god of beauty and desire. Of course, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, which is a little spicier than the later Christian association with the Virgin Mary and wholesome youth and fidelity and purity and immortality. Queen Victoria was obsessed with the language of flowers and carried myrtle in her wedding bouquet. So did Meghan Markle. It's deeply associated now with fidelity and marriage with no reference to Adonis or Aphrodite at all. But still, what went on during the gatherings is likely very mainstream and innocent from what I have read of current historians focusing back on this time in her life. A lot of places you'll read, they talk about um, her mystical cult. And quite honestly, I think it just means that people didn't know exactly what to call her faith. And it just looked unusual to them and mystical. But in reality, it was just her faith. It was the life that she lived. And, you know, the the 
I'm getting too deep in the woods here. So what you're saying is mystical means nunya. (laughs) As in nunya business. That's right. That's yes. Yes. Myrtle slash Polixenia's father died when she was around 14 or 15, and her uncle Erebus became king of all of Epirus at last and cemented his rule in the Molossian half he had just taken over by marrying one of the former king's daughters. Sounds good. Oh, ho, until you remember, it's one of his own nieces, Myrtle slash Polixenia's sister, Troas. Yikes, yikes. Not unheard of in that place and time. Remember, we had another avunculate marriage, that's what they're called, in our Agrippina episode over in the Roman Empire. You should see the list through the ages. Just in the royal families we've touched on during this podcast. And there's more in this episode. So buckle up for that. Well, Cleopatra even, when we talked about Cleopatra. And these are people that are coming after Olympias. Oh, it runs through the 1940s. Yes. I'm just telling you. (laughs) In the royal families of the world. Still legal in parts of New York, I think, actually. Really? I want to say it's an extraordinarily recent ruling. Hmm. Like sometime in the 2000s. So Uncle Erebus marries one niece. Well, what happens to the other one? What happens to most princesses? The guardian in charge of her looks for a suitable match to further an alliance. Um, Their neighbor to the south, Philip II of Macedonia, seemed like a good bet. And who approached whom? Don't know. Philip was a relatively new king. He had been cementing alliances here and there by a very quick series of marriages with the female relatives of his neighbors. He had also gotten onto the throne by, and there's no other word for it, whacking cousins, half-brothers of his. He's only in power because he was a regent for an infant nephew who was the true king, didn't kill him, but just stole his throne flat out and no one stopped him. So he is a hard dude with no principles, (laughs) I I guess. It's part of his um, earlier life. At one point, he was held hostage by a neighboring municipality and ended up learning military strategy from them. So that tells me that this guy knows how to manipulate people in some regards and take a situation that looks really bad. He's a hostage and he comes out of it with a military education. That really, really puts pay to that whole saying, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer, like not too close, because what happens is they learn all your secrets. Mm -hmm. So Philip already had three wives. But honestly, this marriage would be sort of a step up for Polixenia's people, a little bit of of social climbing. And one of the historians that I read put it like this, men agreed to have descendants in common. And I had never thought about it that way. It wasn't necessarily about the women at all, really, or the women being hostages, though they certainly were. It's almost like I agree to merge our family tree. And we will right. become brothers in, in the future or whatever. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I, you say hostages and, you know, we talk about them as being like pawns and stuff. But let's flip it around just a little bit from her perspective. She was raised in an environment where this is what she was going to do with her life. She was going to be married off to somebody. And the fact that she's being married off to a king of a much wealthier area um, is kind of I hate to say it's a good thing, but for her, it would be a welcome thing in some regards. Did I tap dance around that enough? 
Well, I don't understand what you're trying to say. Like, oh, okay. Because I already said it was a, a step up social climbing. Is that what you mean? Well, you had called it, you said the women were like hostages and I didn't want it to sound like, you know, they weren't, they couldn't be happy about the situation. I mean, well, they were hostages sort of, but they were also ambassadors and diplomats because it seems like, and this actually goes through the Tudor era. If we think about how Catherine of Aragon was sent over and there, there was that dispute because she didn't get married, technically she should have gone back to her father for remarriage, for redeployment. But Mm -hmm. then there was a cash problem and she didn't go back and that was considered unusual. So princesses were only sort of on loan until their marriages were over and then their father was supposed to redeploy them. He had mm-hmm. the right. The original family was the possessor. Does that make sense? Um, The controller. Yeah. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. So anyway, diplomats, ambassadors, hostages, whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever you want, you want to call them. <laughs> um, and I'm sure because everyone is a person and no one is a cardboard cutout that different women felt all of those things in different degrees, you know, depending on their home situation and how they were treated once they got to their new homes. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, they went on Philip's terms and made a very, very long journey all the way across modern day Greece and frankly, across the ocean to the island of Samothrace, where both Philip and Polyxenia may have probably did, participate in the initiation ritual into the mysteries of the cult of Samothrace. And I do not know why people keep making this some sort of saucy nightclub act. Um, (laughs) This actually, reading a description of it, seems very dignified and almost regimental. They would go to this thing called the Sanctuary of the Great Gods. It's this big temple complex, and and men and women are allowed to participate, slave people, free people, any nationality. You can participate in this ritual. And what you go through, see if this sounds saucy to you, you go through a period of instruction where you learn the terms, you see the symbols, you get a receipt of some regalia and talismans. There's ritual bathing. Seems like a baptism to me or something very modern. Yes, it does sound very um, civil and dignified and spiritual and beautiful. And then there was a second level optional where you had to sort of confess your, for a lack of a better word, this is not what they called it, sins, your problematic human nature. You had to bear your deepest being to a panel of judges, sort of break down and submit your will to the gods and further regalia. And not as many people went through that. That seemed like more of a tough deal, but still seems very dignified and proper. I don't know. No, I agree. It's ceremonial. And what religion doesn't have ceremonies? So the first meeting of Philip II of Macedonia and Polyxenia was at this prestigious, serious place. And and you'll read that it's it was Thunderbolt City and it was true love at first sight. No, no. It was not a Dionysus mingle situation. It was a business <laughs> transaction. They both didn't just happen to be there accidentally. This whole thing was planned between Philip and Polyxenia's uncle. It wasn't a coincidence that they were there. It was a planned meeting, and there wasn't love. There was business. Now, 
Okay. On the side, though, I'm not discounting the fact she could have very well been quite beautiful. There's no real reliable portrait of her, but as her son was a renowned 11 on a scale of 1 to 10, (laughs) we can perhaps assume from uh, Philip's side, there was at least a strong physical attraction. Who's to say if it was love at first sight as well as politically advantageous? I say, as someone who has leaped into a 27-year marriage after the briefest of meetings. Yeah, but love matches in this society and at this level of of royalty, that's, that's the coincidence if it's a love match. That's just a little icing on the cake. I'm not saying love match. I'm saying lust match. Oh, okay. Well, I would, you know what? (laughs) knowing um, what Philip's libido is like and that he does that with a lot of people across the gender spectrum, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Well, and honestly, Polyxenia wouldn't have been consulted about her feelings anyway. Um, And it wasn't necessarily that important to Philip. You know, honestly, it was like, fair enough. I agree. So physical attraction or even liking each other was not even part of the deal. That's pretty sad to me. But it worked out for thousands of years. So who am I to say? And so um, the betrothal and thus the wedding and Polyxenia joined the complicated household of her new husband. By now, you have all heard of our feline office assistants, my cats, Peep and Louise, and everything I do for them is based in love. Even when we've all been cooped up together, (laughs) they are driving me a little crazy. Love is getting two fake laptops to set up beside mine on the table so they each have a workspace. Love is is texting my son upstairs to come make me a sandwich because one of the kitties is asleep on my lap. Love is also keeping tabs on my cat's health, and that's why I use Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter is the best litter for your cat. It changes colors to help detect early signs of potential illness, including urinary tract infections and kidney issues. Cat owners will know that cats are notorious for hiding signs of illness. So it's nice to have an outside sign. It gives you peace of mind. Litter box cleanup is easier with Pretty Litter, too. It's ultra-absorbent crystals trap odor instantly and last up to a month. No more guests walking in the door and saying or thinking, I see you have a cat. And Pretty Litter arrives safely at my door in a small lightweight bag. Shipping is free and I never have to realize at the last minute that I'm out of cat litter because of the recurring deliveries. Love is putting your cat's health first with Pretty Litter. Do what I did and make the switch today by visiting prettylitter.com and use promo code CHIP for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code CHICKS for 20% off. prettylitter.com, promo code CHICKS. who was about 25 or 26, and Myrtle Polyxania, who was a teenager. It's believed she's about 18. She could have been as young as 14. Uh, They were wed, and she moved into his 
court in Macedonia. She had grown up in court that was full of danger and intrigue, but honestly, that was like training court for where she went. Philip had been through it to get where he was. I said it before, he had a tutor-like level of intrigue and terror and drama. He was a comeback kid who was just now successfully consolidating his power and um, was, by all accounts, kind of a hard, hard man. And if you think about it, no matter how many people you get rid of, they all have friends and relations left. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're all percolating in the background. This guy had to be vigilant and he had to be unforgiving and he had to be quick. <laughs> so right. that's where he was. That's where his mind was. The feelings of a young lady who had just entered his household were extraordinarily low on his list as it was not really key to his survival. No, not at all. It really kind of blew my mind at how fast he was able to get control, not just of his own country, but of countries around him. He's only been king for you know two, three years at this point. That's fast to me. Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't know the life of a king enough, but it seems like he just you know took charge. He had to, or somebody else was going to do it, I guess. So because Philip wasn't really looking out for what she was doing, Myrtle Polyxania moved into her new home. There were three other wives that were already there, but it wasn't as if they were all living together under one roof. They all had their own separate households. You know that show, um, was it on HBO? It had Bill Paxton. I almost said Pullman, like everybody does. Um, in it, um, it was called Big Love, mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. a polygamous family in Utah, right. where from the front, all the houses were separate, and then it was one household in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of what was happening. Everybody had their own servants and their own companions, and I found myself hoping that she had a friend. You know, everyone in the past is people, like now, not like cold-hearted robots. Mm-hmm. And I know it was also customary for noblemen from the assorted countries um, where the wives had come from to also come to Philip's court to kind of network and get knowledge and get training. So I hope some people that she knew came with her. I'm sure they did. I, I would find it really hard to believe that she was she couldn't be thrown into that all by herself. Although if she was, I think she was cunning enough, you know, to make the situation work. Right. So it was a complicated household full of a lot of names to learn and relationships to divine. And Philip had boyfriends, too, as well as wives. Society was a little more fluid then. And the thing is, no one was going to nominate her um, head wife or hand her any status. She had to do that herself. And what she had to do was produce an heir. There were three other wives there who had children, but they were girls. And girls had value, but they didn't have the value of a son. Well, the next year after they had gotten married, Philip's status was increased because his horse had won at the Olympic Games. Now, what? Well, he was the first Macedonian king to be allowed to compete in these games because up until then, Macedonians were considered to be, quote, real Greeks. So his achievements and the fact that he had made such a name for himself in the region made him equal to a legitimate Greek ruler who could participate. And then he won 
That was like a one-two punch to his ego and his psyche. And while he was away at work, it was a battle, but he was away <laughs> at work. Um, he learned about the horse winning and in the 356 BC Olympics. I don't know what their logo was. Probably the torch. That seems like a good guess. <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to look it up later. <laughs> So while he was away at work, he learned about the Olympics, for which he was so proud that he later referred to this on coinage. <laughs> That's how big of a deal it was. <laughs> and Myrtle, Polyxenia, that was, changed her name. Oh, to one that we won't forget to say, it's Olympias. <laughs> so no more awkward juggling of the Myrtle, Polyxenia, question mark. <laughs> we are now fully into calling her Olympias, which was either her choice as a strategic move to really cement, you know, her presence with that great victory in his life. That's really mm -hmm. smart. If so, or perhaps he gave it to her. Either way, um, I hope it was strategy. I do too. Although if he gave it to her, that's also saying something about oh, yeah, his relationship yeah. with her. Yeah. And then he got two further good pieces of news. One of his wives had a son. His name was Aridaeus. And then Olympias was delivered of a son who they named Alexander. Her motivations for saying this, what I'm about to tell you, which is legend, are unknown. They were either spiritual or strategic. But Olympias claims that on the night of her wedding to Philip, she had a dream that her uterus was struck by a lightning bolt. And Beckett Graham, there you go. There's your Thunderbolt City. <laughs> so what does that mean? My so uterus when her has been struck by a thunderbolt. I don't think I could put that on a t-shirt. So when her first child, Alexander the baby, okay, that's a joke. When her first child, Alexander, was born, she insisted that that meant that he was the son of the god of thunder, Zeus himself. So let's bring all the big gods into this family. Or else it was an insurance policy. And here's why I um, cynically say that is because that's the way to give yourself status in a multi-wife household to be the producer of sons. Your future as a person likely depended on your son's rank and performance anyway, more than whatever your husband's rank and status was, which was really only temporary, you know? Mm -hmm. um, remember the Tudor grandmothers? We talked about Margaret Beaufort and how just lion-like she became um, about her son or Eleanor of Aquitaine and her multiple sons. We've already covered the ferocity with which mothers of royal sons act in order to get power for their children. And right now, as of this minute, they're less than a year old, her son is tied for first place with his slightly older brother, Aridaeus. So um, imagine the anxiety and tension. And thank goodness we brought Zeus in because now we're equal because that one's older, but mine is the child of Zeus. <laughs> is it genuine spirituality or is it forward thinking strategy and marketing? <laughs> right. I mean, we can speculate until tomorrow morning about it. But if it's a little bit of both, then everybody's happy. Right, right. Well, Philip, the king, and Olympias were notoriously, um, the word, what? Tempestuous, speaking of storms, 
with each other. And it's one of these relationships where they are both so strong of personalities. They're like magnets that repel and then they flip and stick back together. I could not stand the pressure and stress of a relationship like that, but (laughs) some people thrive on it. I would like to bring back into the conversation that I skated over before Olympus's famous participation in the cult of Dionysus. And again, people keep attributing all of this lewd behavior to her activities here. A lot of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And I'm here to tell you what's okay for a king is not okay for the goose, if you know what I mean, to mix metaphors. Um, You should know, (laughs) number one, queens are not going to be allowed to have un- what am I even saying? <laughs> I, I don't um, know, but I'd love to hear you try to come up with a word. <laughs> uh, super happy fun time with all and sundry. And also the cult of Dionysus as practiced here and now was, we argue, a giant stress release. It was women together, elite women in this case, who would literally let their hair down. I mean, number one, your hair flowing in the wind was just as sensual as could be. That's not normally the case. Mm-hmm. And they would be able to go into the night, into the, the forest or into a temple where they could sing and dance to the beat of a drum and scream and sing and wave their hands in the air and let themselves fill with joy. They equated this with being filled with the possession of the spirit of the gods. I mean, ecstatic dancing of this kind is the traditional definition of the word orgy. And I think that's why in the English-speaking world, we're getting confused about what's Mm -hmm. going on here. Right, right. Because you hear about, you know, the cult of Dionysus. And for people who've never heard of that god, for the Romans, it's Bacchus. So we've all heard about Bacchus, you know, it's drinking wine and, you know, just this major party. But it was a spiritual event for these people. This actually sounds like a music festival or a rave to me. It does. And it reminds me of the scene. And ah, I can't remember if it was in the books or not. But in Anne with an E, all the girls went out one night and built a bonfire and they were in their nightgowns and they put crowns of flowers on their heads. And they just you know, screamed and danced and spun in circles around this fire in the moonlight. Same thing. So I do think this is definitely a very, very welcome outlet in a extraordinarily circumscribed society. There wasn't really even wine drinking or actual intoxication. Lady persons in Macedonia weren't generally thought to be capable of holding their drink. (laughs) And they probably weren't (laughs) since they weren't given any, you know. What about the snakes, though? Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? (laughs) Later writers insist that she slept with snakes. Snakes were involved in deviant sexual behavior. See above, you know, with what Mm -hmm. I just said. They're shaped like things. You're right. They are. Olympias brought, as they say, magic, pharmaca, which means drugs, and control of snakes with her from her homeland, which may or may not be aftermarket slander, but serpents were sacred to Dionysus, 
and pet snakes to be used in the rituals. Also a certain kind of fear and excitement factor, and that's a certain amount of power. I myself once had a snake named David Boa, and I'm not particularly adept at magic. Whoa, what? You had a snake as a pet? Well, okay. So I had a male friend who had a snake named David Boa, whose mother would not allow him to bring it back for summer vacation. And I took hold of the custody of said David Boa, and he never came back to that college. And I was left with David Boa. It's clever. It's clever offloading. (laughs) So what did you do with it? Well, I'm sorry to say that David Boa um, became a spectacle at parties and unbeknownst to me when I was gone, somebody had let him out during a party. I don't know how this is possible that you're not going to see a giant snake going out the door, but he ended up seeking warmth on the road. Oh, and he got run over by a car, which may or may not be the first incidence of that. <laughs> I, think I just don't know. Um, and I was pretty sad because it wasn't his fault and um, I should have picked a better caretaker. So I still feel guilty about about him, um, but I was not I was not nearby. Well, if only David Boa had a pet parent like Olympias was, who took care of her snakes. Well, I mean, I'm safe to say that a certain percentage of people were scared of him, even though he was really nice. I um, would have gone in the other direction. Yeah, it is a it is she could well have had snakes in baskets all over the place. People mm-hmm. Some people like snakes. And also, you know, the fact that that animal was sacred to the god that she was dancing about. And I mean, think how thrilling that would be if you were comfortable with snakes to have it as a companion while you're dancing and stuff. It's like that extra thrill of like fear slash forbiddenness. Mm -hmm. You know, I get it. I think that's very, very cool. And also to anyone not au fait with your... um, procedures there at the cult of Dionysus, this would be super scary and freaky. Yeah, I think. There's no doubt. I hate snakes. (laughs) (laughs) So word is from later writers that King Philip came to her bed, saw a snake in her bed, stopped visiting her in that way forever. And that could have been so no spells needed. (laughs) It's excellent birth control, those snakes. Which is kind of ironic because Dionysus is also the god of fertility. So to scare away the baby daddy, it's not good. Well, also, they were not good at getting along. You know, why mess with it? If yeah. there's a snake in here, if there's snakes sleeping in here, I have lots of kinder opportunities sans snake. So lots. I don't know about the snakes. All I'm saying is um, they fit in nicely with the previous religious practices. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say right now, the Angelina Jolie snake scene was not cool. Oh, that movie. I'll talk about it later. It was just a ponderous mess. I put the picture of the movie poster in the show notes and you have to title the pictures. I put that movie. (laughs) Angelina Jolie looked great. I just don't think the portrayal of Olympias meshed with what more sober historians say about her. It tracks a little more with the, I don't know, later Roman and after propaganda about Olympias. And I think we're meant to think of her as really, really left of center, you know? Mm -hmm. So the end about my soapbox. But (laughs) fertility snakes or not, Olympias did have another child within a couple years, this time a girl who they named Cleopatra. 
That's a name that's going to go through the ages, isn't it? Oh, yes. <laughs> so to teach Olympias's uncle a lesson, Philip went and stole her brother Alexander and brought him back. There is a rumor. Do I say rumor when it's written down for centuries? <laughs> that Philip, her husband, and Alexander her brother engaged in a torrid, emotion-filled affair. Leaving that there, that's uncomfortable. To have your brother and your husband in love. As the years passed, (laughs) it became apparent that Philip's older son was suffering from some sort of mental disability. Um, Hard to diagnose from here, of course, but the general assumption started to become that he was not going to be fit to rule. And so King Philip and the country in general began to treat Olympias's son, Alexander, as the eventual heir to his father's kingdom. Of course, later chronicles of this period accused Olympus of engineering poor Prince A's disability through pharmaca. It always seems to be <laughs> underlined, which is shades of flowers in the attic. You know, does anyone remember that story? Oh, no God. spoilers, Haunt- but haunting. It's a haunting story. Yes. But why were we even allowed to read that? I don't know. They didn't know. That's why. They're like, oh, look, they're reading. That's great. Flowers in the attic. How sweet. Oh, it's about a brother and a sister. So cute. Okay. Yikes. That's cute. Did but you get into those books? I did. I did. I got into any books that were put in front of me. Books, cereal boxes, newspapers. If you put it in front of me, I read it. So, yes, I did read them at a very tender age. Well, 40 million of us reading Flowers in the Attic aside, I could be exaggerating. Anyway, it makes no sense. If you were truly bent on removing your son's rival by the dark arts, I, I don't know why you wouldn't just fully take him out. Why just half, right. half measures, you know? Right. Um, Olympias does need blame for some things later, I will tell you. But I do think this prince can safely be placed in the hands of of nature, mm-hmm. of Dionysus or whatnot, you know? Yeah. It could have been something as simple as a genetic disorder or even a head trauma. You know, it could have been anything. Oh, I never even thought about being hit with a blunt object. Well, I don't mean by Olympias. I just mean, you know, running around the rocks and he falls. Oh, oh, head. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. As my son gets ready to go to extreme sports camp. Thank you for that picture. He wears a helmet. (laughs) Eric Davis wasn't wearing a helmet. Well, Olympias's mother-in-law died during Alexander's childhood, and she, as the mother of the king, may well have been the most powerful person on the premises, but that obstacle is now removed. And so Olympias rose in status as the mother of the heir apparent, totally the best possible place at court. And while Alexander did have an extraordinary education provided by his father, taught by the likes of Aristotle. I mean, he learned medicine, religion, history, logic, philosophy, military tactics, writing, physical training, all the skills you would need as a warrior king. Olympias taught her son to be proud of his heroic maternal line, which was, after all, descended from notable and famous heroes and that often repeated story that Olympias felt a thunderbolt in her womb. And what to her wondering womb should appear? <laughs> it was Zeus. Uh, right. 
the seed of Zeus. I don't know how Zeus procreates. I know at one point he sewed Dionysus into his thigh or something. Yes, he did. Yeah, it's very complicated. Yeah. Yes, it is. So that would be some parentage to live up to, Zeus. He was under some pressure to live up to the expectations of the parents he already had on Earth. And now there's that layered on him. (laughs) (laughs) So in a general way, Olympias kept her position as highest woman in the land for about a decade, even after a fifth and sixth wife were brought into the family from other territories. There's no real need to scheme. Just keep an eye on everybody. Right. Status quo is good. We're just going to keep our hand lightly on the tiller. While Olympias was doing what she was doing to help raise Alexander, Philip was pretty much gone all the time. He was out on campaigns trying to join all of those Greek states into a single superpower with him at the helm. They each had their own governments, but he oversaw everything. And how was he doing this? He was a military genius. He came up with what was called the Macedonian phalanx. What it is, is row upon row. Think 10 soldiers across, 10 soldiers deep that all march in tight unison, carrying an 18 to 22 foot long spear. The spears that the other guys were using were like nine feet long. So that alone, the spear alone was going to get them ahead. But the fact that they were all practiced at being military... Philip set up a military academy for all his soldiers to run drills and marches and just work as an organized, coordinated, choreographed unit. Aristocrats sent their sons to go to this academy. They studied from like the age of seven to 18 when they were able to be graduated and become officers in the Macedonian army. So The military strategies that Philip was employing, nobody could beat them. So that's how he was able to get all these countries, you know, under his umbrella. So he was an innovator and people were scrambling to catch up, (laughs) basically. Absolutely. Yeah. They couldn't. Yeah. They couldn't get past him. I mean, it was just think about those, you know, war movies and how many do I watch? None. But, you know, the armies are marching. And then all of a sudden there's like a whoosh. And they're all like holding up shields that are strapped to their arms and they all have their spears out in front of them. And it's just like one massive unit instead of a bunch of guys. That's what he did. Well, so Philip is dangerous. He's dangerous in a lot of ways. He brought home, uh, you know, I think this is going to be like pride slash scared. That is where I am right now to Olympias. (laughs) Husbands bring home dangerous vehicles. I know, girl. This dangerous vehicle was an enormous, powerful horse. And Philip watched people trying to take care of and handle this horse, and they couldn't. He said, nope, this horse won't do. He's too skittish. Send him away. But Alexander was watching all of this happen, and he screamed out, what a horse you're losing just because you lack the knowledge to handle him? So Alexander makes a bet with Philip that he can tame this horse. And Philip says, okay, fine, go ahead. What Alexander had noticed was that the horse was skittish when he saw his shadow. So he went over to the horse, did that horse whisperer talk to him, turned the horse to face the sun so he couldn't see his shadow. Next thing you know, Alexander is riding away on this horse. He named him Bucephalus, which means ox head. Probably has to do with the stubbornness of the horse. But this horse was with Alexander 
for most of the rest of his life, for all of his battles, he was on this horse. And then you look as a mother and think, oh, okay, I see the genetic material of your father. I mean, (laughs) oh my goodness, danger, danger, Alexander Robinson. But the real danger began when Alexander was 16. His papa went out to take names and kick booty as he does on a battlefield and left his son as regent. I won't even go out of town and leave mine in charge of the liquor cabinet. (laughs) And when the king's away, the neighbors will stray. During Papa's absence, Alexander heard of trouble, took an army to a place, and put down a revolt by a Thracian tribe. He proceeded to create a military colony there, populated by trusted men, and named it Alexanderopolis, and was home eating figs by the time Papa got home. (laughs) That's awesome. He's the man. And by the age of 18, Alexander was fighting with Philip. Alexander was leading a cavalry and having victory after victory with his father. Finally, Philip has achieved his goal to unify all of Greece with the exception of Sparta, but we're not going to talk about that. Uh, There's a whole movie, isn't there? Um, To unify all of Greece. And it was like, yes, project done. And to commemorate this monumental event, Philip decides that he's going to build a monument, a temple, basically to himself. It's called the Philippion, and it's in Olympia, where the Olympics are held. Basically, he and his family are the only mortal statues in a place where there's only statues of gods, suggesting that, well, I'm not going to call myself a god, but if you worship me like one, you wouldn't be wrong. The important thing to me about this is that the statues that he put inside this temple were of him, his parents, Alexander, saying that this is my heir, and Alexander's mother, Olympias. That's it. None of the other wives were in there. Mm. So he's chosen the senior royals. I think so. Flush with his victories afield, King Philip decided to take a seventh wife 20 years after he and Olympias had married another Cleopatra, who was the adopted daughter of his general Attalus and the first full-blooded Macedonian wife that his majesty had taken. For the sake of clarity, given that this man also has a daughter named Cleopatra, We'll refer to her as Eurydice, the name she took when she married Philip, the name of his own mother. (laughs) That's not too creepy. That's a family name. It's an honor. It's an honor. Yeah. Well, as far as Olympias was concerned, this is alert level Amber. A full-blooded Macedonian son just might have the edge over her own son. And no sense not welcoming her to the family in public. You know, standards must be maintained, however much she might rage in private. Alexander was a young man, a proven warrior, and nothing threatening had happened yet. But you know, my eyes are upon you. 
except for the following. Eurydice's father opened a can of worms. At the symposium, which sounds really fancy, but basically it's a bachelor party. It's a lot of drinking of wine and having religious experiences. At this symposium, all of men, Eurydice's father stood up and said, here's a toast to the birth of a true heir, a pure Macedonian between my daughter and the king. Alexander is standing right there. This man has just said, maybe we'll get a legitimate heir at last, because all we have, he didn't say this, is this bastard. Right. And to further enrage Alexander, his father refused to defend him. And it looked as though Philip were coming across to attack Alexander when he fell flat on his face. Alexander rolled his eyes, made a snide comment about how could Philip cross continents if he couldn't even cross the room, and he stormed off, thinking that his father was about to attack him. Like, what the fork and spoon, dear papa? You know, where have we just been? Did I not just save your life in battle? Yes, I did. And now you're going to dishonor me in public in this way and not defend me against this ridiculous fool. And Alexander took himself and his mother Olympias out of that place, right out of the kingdom. He dropped his mother off with her people in Melosia and went to stay with known enemies of the kingdom in Illyria, the family of the first wife, the warrior princess. He was making a point, A, how dare you? And B, I'm going to need a public apology from you. I don't want a, a side note in the morning. I'm going to look weak if if there's not a gesture from your side. And I've gone far enough away that you're going to have to make some noise. Olympias, for her part, was reputed to be campaigning with the king of Melosia, her brother, Alexander, so many names that are all the same, <laughs> to um, intervene and go in and handle this insult to the family honor. Was Philip literally saying Melosian blood wasn't good enough to rule the descendants of Achilles? who had triumphed in battle, he had to go in and defend the honor. Now, the problem is Alexander really owed his throne to his brother-in-law. It was really awkward. Plus, Melosia is not going to be able to fight against... I mean, it was like a losing battle if he started it. So he, he didn't spring to action. As a public apology, and also, side note, to neutralize the threat of Olympia's brother... King Philip arranged a marriage between this King Alexander, his brother-in-law, and his own daughter, Cleopatra. Yes, Olympias's daughter, too. Yet another uncle-niece marriage. Further made soap opera-y by the fact that Philip and Alexander were also bed buddies. The level of drama in any part of this story is good for a movie or a series. You would think it'd be good for a movie, and then we're left with that movie. <laughs> I think they looked too big in that movie. I think they should have just picked like one thing to focus on. There's so many in here. Right. Well, okay. That is a gesture. Fair enough. That could save our face. So there's like a little bit of cooling. But then Olympus got wind that a Persian ruler was trying to marry his daughter to our Alexander's older brother. Remember, the one thought to be out of the line of succession by virtue of his disability. What is this? Everyone 
on all sides seems to be cutting Alexander out of the succession all of a sudden, a thing which had been in no doubt until five minutes ago. I mean, understand her complacency for a decade and then like within a short period of time, all of this is happening. Alexander went and like inserted himself into the plan instead. Yay, said the Persians. No, go home, said Papa. You upstart, how dare you? Not another public insult. Like, I don't want you there marrying his daughter. So, you know what? We're back down into grumpy land. But okay, let's let the wedding go ahead. And it started off fine. Philip had pulled out all the stops. This was going to be not only a wedding, but a PR stunt. Let's show a unified region. Let's flaunt the riches and the culture of Macedonia. Let's invite world leaders and all their scribes. It'll be awesome. And it did start off awesome. It was a festival. There was dinners. There was another symposium. There were parades. There was revelry for all. King Philip took center stage to toast the newlyweds. But then one of his own most trusted bodyguards raced at him and stabbed him fatally. This bodyguard was... Not, coincidentally, a mistreated ex-boyfriend of his. Now, who got the blame for this man's actions? Almost immediately, Olympias and Alexander, sort of, in the aftermath, someone had left horses for the assassin, who tripped on a loose sandal or a vine, word varies, and got caught and immediately killed. No one bothered to interview him, which is good for whoever put him up to it. And there was no love lost between Olympias and Alexander and Philip. You know, with all that bad PR, though gradually common sense started to reassert itself a little bit. A public assassination would be the ruin of Olympias and Alexander's goals if it had been traced back to them. And both were better tacticians than that. People sort of agreed, you know, Mm -hmm. well, right. And there were lots of other people who who could have participated. Well, so Olympias likely didn't have a hand in her husband's murder. But neither was she that sad about it either, really. I'm sorry to say. Mm-hmm. And now she was the mother of the king, which is the best thing to be. And a widow. I mean, we've talked about that. That lasts for a long time in history, that widows are extremely powerful. Now, the next thing is pretty despicable. The, the details do vary. I think the general story proceeds apace. Olympias had the child of the seventh wife killed a little girl named Europa, and there may have been a baby son too. There is division on that fact. And either killed Eurydice or forced her to commit suicide. I I don't want to defend this. This is awful. But this is also the culture that they're in. This This is what happens all over the place in this time with all of these people. You know, the second that Philip hit the ground, Eurydice must have known that her time was limited. Well, Alexander also did a widespread purge of rivals and partisans, including Eurydice's father, the one that had insulted him at that wedding banquet. Who wants this life, Susan? Who? I've said it before. I'll say it again. Please give me a house in the country. I don't want to be the queen. I will sign a paper before a million witnesses. It's too much. Leave me out of it. You know, and I guess maybe you can't leave yourself out of it because someone will always use you for their ends. Uh, I don't know. Well, so the despicability has come to roost in our subject at last. You know us, and we tried to see her side of things until now. 
You know, hearken back to any male cast member of this story, though, and tell me if we're more shocked because she's a woman, because they're all as bad or worse. Numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what? For some reason, I was able in this particular story, and it's really hard for me in a lot of them, to disassociate myself from it. I mean, we really can't take our modern times and put it on any era in history and assume it's the same thing, right? But this is so far back. It's almost like it's uh, happening on a different planet to me. I just don't know that people were made of stone. No, no, I don't think they were either. But it was also um, more commonplace. That sounds awful. I sound awful, don't I? Well, and I was thinking about this in terms of, you know, we're always seeing these little graves of babies and children. And we Mm -hmm. always... Throughout our whole podcast, we have talked about infant mortality and how common it was and everything. And I I just don't think there was no mourning, mm-hmm. even though you did expect it. It still mm-hmm. wasn't awesome. No, no, um, I know. And she was doing it to try and, you know, stop any other claimants. You know, already, right as soon as he took the throne, Alexander was doing the same thing as dad was. And pretty much playing rebellion whack-a-mole, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is another possible scenario that could come to bite them. And she's protecting her son, first off, and herself. You know, it was either them or her in her eyes. Well, Alexander departed to conquer Asia, just like you do. He had big goals, (laughs) big dreams. He had big goals and big dreams because Philip had them too. Philip really laid the groundwork. He gave him this perfect springboard, you know, the military, the strategy, the power, the plans to take over, you know, Persia and Asia and, you know, as far as they could go. Alexander hit the ground with a well-trained everything and a plan. He didn't have to invent it. I'm still, I'm not saying he's not great. He is. But I think Philip needs to get a lot of credit for what he was able to do. Well, we can give you a link to a more complete saga of Alexander's life and work, if that floats your boat and is a rabbit hole you want to to go down. But Mm -hmm. from the perspective of Olympias, though she doesn't know this, when Alexander rides away from her right now, he would never see his home or his mother again. I have to wonder if she thought that every time he left, though, every time he went to battle, you know, every time Philip went to battle, that it was going to be the last time she saw them. Yeah. Well, but for the next 13 years, um, they capped up quite a correspondence. And Olympias was as powerful as any woman could be. You know, officially, of course, the regent was a general named Antipater, who did prove to be a genius at war and loyal to both Macedonia and to Alexander. But behind the scenes, it seems to be Olympias, who handled a lot of the um, outreach of diplomacy and the practical running of the country. She's very detail-oriented. Mm-hmm. You know, she kept up lots of different kinds of correspondences with people in other countries. And I have to say, she was not always liked. She was a little strident for the lady persons of the day, but she was always respected for her mind and just for her position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was all over the place, you know, helping people as long as there was like a benefit to her, of course. 
she was dedicating shrines in the name of the royal family. She actually was able to exile some people who had stolen from the royal coffers. That's a lot of power. That would be things that the regent would technically do. And she technically wasn't that. And there was somebody saying um, in one of the books I read that large grain deliveries were addressed to her attention for her to distribute and give right. away. And it's not very common to have those addressed to a woman. So right. she was in charge of some of that grander sort of um, philanthropy as well to the people in general. Mm. Also at this time, Olympias's daughter, Cleopatra, who was queen of Malosia, her husband died. And so Olympias was able to go up and be with her daughter and kind of use some of her power in her homeland as well. Disagreements flowed in the form of letters of complaint from Antipater and Olympias to Alexander. He <laughs> thinks he's the king. She thinks she's my boss. I can imagine Alexander opening these letters up on the battlefield and his feelings about that. Um, he is reputed to have said at least once that his mother was charging him a very high rent for having provided him with housing for nine months, um, which is a funny thing to say. I hope Jet never says that about, about me. Yikes. But he called for Antipater finally after so much poison had been poured in his ear about him. He called for Antipater to show up, basically to be fired. Antipater thought this was a death sentence. He was not going to drive over there. You know, he sent his son Cassander instead, innocent bystander representative, which <laughs> infuriated everybody with its disrespect, but did thwart Alexander's wishes of firing that guy, you know? Mm -hmm. Macedonia was, of course, Alexander's responsibility, but he felt that it was being taken care of and he had more important things in front of him. And he was acting pretty fast with his army of nearly 40,000 people. Within three years, he was able to declare himself the king of Persia. Then he conquered Egypt and then he established a town in his name, the city of Alexandria. After 10 years on the road, and royals throwing their daughters at him and he turning down all of them for marriage, although he was very active, just like his father was. He finally married. He married the daughter of a prince, a Persian royal, 10 years after. I mean, 10 years. That is a long time for a king to not have a wife. He had been pressured to take a wife and to beget heirs before he left for Asia. And he demurred. Uh, his advisors are like, you cannot leave with no heirs. And mm -hmm. he's like, watch me go. Right. Breathe the dust of the hooves of Bucephalus. You know, <laughs> like, so he defied his advisors. And it really is pretty irresponsible of him to leave things in such disarray because his remaining capable relatives are all ladies. And that was kind of unheard of in, in that time to have a woman ruler. So he was really leaving people in a pickle if anything happened to him. So after these 10 years, he finally has a wife. Uh, he takes two more in a mass wedding ceremony that he arranges in Persia. He wanted his soldiers to marry women and intermingle these two cultures. 
he was able to call himself the king of Macedonia, the king of Persia, the king of Babylon, the king of Asia, and the king of the four corners of the world. Toward the end of his life, it it seems like Alexander was increasingly of his mother's mindset, like maybe this guy was trying to usurp kingly power and get his own mitts on the kingdom. It's 323 BCE. Olympias is at this point 52 years old. She's enjoying what is, quite honestly, a very precarious position. She's a mother to the king, of course, but she's also kind of a queen regent in her homeland. She's juggling a lot of things when she gets word. Alexander, at the age of 32, became gravely ill in uh, what was then Babylon. Exactly the cause was unknown. It just blows my mind that he was in all these battles for all these years. He never lost a battle. He was injured quite severely. He never lost a battle. And finally, he succumbs to could have been malaria or poisoning. He was ill for 12 days violently. Everyone wanted him to name his successor. And all he would say was to the strongest. Like, my kingdom goes to the strongest. What the heck does that mean? Rosebud, right? Nobody knew. And then he died. Well, Olympias herself suspected Antipater and his son Cassander and poison, and she was certainly not alone in her suspicion. Unfortunately, Alexander's vagueness and everybody's eagerness to jump on board at this scenario, and we're going to simplify this a lot because this is this is a back and forth that spans decades. Right. But as of right now, we've got two front runner legitimate kingly figures. Alexander's elder brother, Aridaeus, who now was sort of crowned, nominated to be Philip Aridaeus, the king, also one of Alexander's wives, who had been six months pregnant when he died, bore a son. Well, he was born after his death, but that's a baby king. That's a legitimate, instantly proclaimed king. So we have two relatives of Alexander with their own backers, their own people with their own self-interest at heart that are fixing to go to war. Well, yeah, it's two people that would need to have a regent. So there's people that are behind them who are very motivated to take the position. So I would like to back one step up on a side note. I found an intriguing circular family story that bursts back into our story right here. So let's begin. <laughs> Do you remember back at the beginning that I said King Philip was only king in the first place because he was one of those uncle regents for a baby prince that just flat out stole the baby's crown? Yes. Sorry about that. Not waiting. I'm the boss. Well, right. When that baby became a man, Philip arranged for him to marry one of his own daughters, Philip's daughters. Kenane is her name, daughter of Philip's first wife and daughter of a warrior princess. Literally, this lady was raised and trained to fight and showed up on the battlefield. She fought with her younger brother, Alexander the Great, like fought with him in danger. After she was widowed, which was Alexander's fault, her husband had been part of the purge when he had come to power. She trained her own daughter, Adia, in the arts of subterfuge and war. Oh. Alexander's half-sister was determined to marry this daughter to the disabled Philip Aridius and rule through her grandsons. She actually sacrificed her life to set up this marriage. 
And that's the blood sacrifice that started Team Eridaeus on its tracks. And so we're returning to the timeline, and we now have his wife, Adia Eurydice, her name that was taken upon marriage. That's not confusing at all. <laughs> so Adia, let's call her. Also on Team Eridaeus is the son of General Antipater, the man we talked about earlier named Cassander. So that's one team. The other team is Team Baby Alexander IV. And on that team, it's essentially led by Olympias. It is her grandson, after all. Roxana, who is the child's mother, is on this team. And there is an actual battle. Now, we don't talk a lot about wars on this show because that's not our thing, because usually women don't fight in wars. With their own small armies behind them, representing Team Brother is Adia Eurydice, this warrior princess dressed for combat. You know, she's dressed just like a man would be to go to combat. On the other side, we have Olympias, who enters this field dressed as a follower of Dionysus. Now, no one actually says what that means, but in my head, imagine Moira Rose at David and Patrick's wedding when she <laughs> came in with the big headdress and the white thing and everyone was like, oh, in awe. That is what Olympias looked like at this battle. And all the warriors on the other side, all the soldiers refused to not only kill the mother of Alexander the Great, but to kill this woman who has appeared like a goddess on the war field. So that victory went to Team Baby. So Olympias had Philip Eridaeus, that's brother, stabbed to death in front of his wife, Adia, who was in fact her real rival, and then sent Adia Eurydice three gifts, poison, a sword, and a noose. You pick. It's the gift of private self-inflicted execution. Merry Christmas. She chose the rope. With his victory, Olympias again gets her name changed to Stratonice, which basically means army and victory. Do we call her Stratonice or do we just proceed with Olympias? Just proceed with Olympias. Okay. <laughs> so Olympias did not managed to actually get to Cassander himself, which was the kind of the biggest male backer on Team Brother. But she did seize his own brother and over a hundred of his supporters and had them all executed as traitors. Now we are entering some truly bloodthirsty territory. I read where at this time uh, hundreds of people got run over by elephants or that Cassander slaughtered 500 of Olympias's people. I mean, it is in general just a bloodbath, hey-ho, rumble with no rhyme or reason or take backsies. It is out of control. Cassander's generals proved ultimately to be better than Olympias. As it turned out, she was captured after a two-year siege of the fortress town in which she had taken refuge and had been lured out by a promise to spare her life. And do these people tell the truth? No, they do not. Cassander was absolutely lying. Cassander sent 200 soldiers to kill her. But again, her honor as Alexander's mother and under her own gathered reputation as a leader and, and a person of repute and dignity, they quailed and they couldn't do it. He was furious at these people. What are you, professional soldiers? What is it going to take? 
and he summoned relatives of those of his followers that she had ordered executed. Now they surely could be counted on to carry out the sentence of death. And they did. Queen Olympias of Macedonia was 59 years old, probably. She was not afforded a dignified death, which would be customary for her station. No, in fact, she was not even afforded the dignity of a private execution. The relatives of the people she had executed stoned her publicly. Cassander also didn't give her a royal burial. Which unfortunately seems to have been a family misfortune. Alexander the Great's body, where it is buried, is a giant mystery. Historians think that it might be in Alexandria. It might be in the middle of the desert. There's even a theory that it might be in Venice. I'll link you up to an article to explain that one. That's Alexander. Olympias, we have absolutely no idea where she was buried. None. So both the bodies of Olympias and her son, Alexander the Great, are missing all these years later. So Cassandra forbade anyone to bury her body or perform any rituals over it. He intended to carry his sentence over into the next world, in fact. But her extended family, people think, did manage a tomb for her sometime afterward. Uh, it remained secret during the remainder of Cassandra's lifetime, but did ultimately end up with a plaque and her grave, where she had fallen or nearby where she had fallen, seems to have been a place where similarly expatriated Molossians buried their own dead. So her tomb became sort of a magnet for other Molossians' graves. But the thing is, these days we don't know where that is. Cassander then, to cement his legitimacy, married Alexander's other sister, Thessalonica, and had three sons. Now, I'm sorry to say that the grandbaby, technically King Alexander IV, ruled briefly under the regency of Cassander, who was supposed to step back when young Alexander IV came of age. But when he was about 14, which was the Macedonian age of possible maturity, he and his mother were poisoned by order of Cassander, who ruled for another 13 years. Thessalonica, his wife, was killed by her middle son. And again, I say, who would want the power? Just honestly, you know what? Let's go back in time and give everyone a piece of advice. Just erect a big statue of yourself in an obscure cave. And when we find it, we will never know. That's right. <laughs> that you're an opportunist and a liar. Just do it. It'll save yourself so much trouble. <laughs> oh, that was quite a story. It, it was problematic in many parts. Um, I, I just don't, obviously, I, you know, it's clear by now that I don't understand the warrior mentality and I don't understand the struggle, but I don't have it in me to be that competitive either. I don't know if that means that I think I'm competitive. I don't know. I don't so, know, I don't so know what to say. Would you fight for... I would fight for my children. I would absolutely fight for my children. So I, that I guess I am putting on her, but it's also fighting for her own life and her own livelihood and also her family, you know, keeping the name of her family in front of people and honored was an important thing to her. So she had a lot of motivating factors to do what she did. I don't like that 
there was nothing, uh, you know, written down about her at the time. There's all these rumors because 400 years after her death, a writer named Plutarch wrote the biographies of prominent Greeks and Romans, and he was definitely not Team Olympias at all. She does make a good villain for his stories. He was quite a member of the patriarchy, for sure. But I think he just attributed all these things to her that just weren't true. Unfortunately, that's what was passed down in history as the truth. And it's taking years and years to unravel it all. I just wish we knew more, but we don't. Right. And, you know, like, I'm just thinking, you know, like how Elizabeth Bathory was a bad guy. Mm Mm-hmm but also did not bathe in blood. Right. I think Olympias could legitimately be considered a bad guy, Mm -hmm. but was not worse than her male counterparts. Right. I mean, everybody still thinks of Genghis Khan as a great hero, but he laid waste to, you know, infinite numbers of people. Right. And everyone still thinks he's awesome. So, well, look, Alexander the Great did exactly the same thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's the lens that, I don't know, I'm still not even understanding the allure of land grabbing and power. I just don't, like, I think I am having trouble with the fundamental concept of wanting it in the first place. So Susan's right. The publicity after her death kind of went one of two ways. Either she was like nearly a goddess figure who could do no wrong, who was related to Achilles, who had power and strategy and Zeus all up in her business and all that kind of thing. And then all of the people with the anti-PR said it wasn't Zeus. It was a snake and she was this and the thing and evil and wanton and a liar. And um, the truth is that she's in the middle. She's a human person who basically took the situation that was handed to her and dealt with it in the best way that she can. And in fact, one of the books that we're about to recommend, um, the author put it quite well. So well, in fact, that other books quote her and wrote, one doubts that any royal woman in such parlous times could have done better. And now it's time, as usual, for media. And we will start with books. And I think the main one we're going to recommend is pretty much the only one that is definitely focused on just Olympias herself. It's called Olympias, Mother of Alexander the Great by Elizabeth Carney. And she is a professor of ancient history. She's a scholar of ancient women. So I think all the information is not only factual, but I thought it was pretty well written for something that's so scholarly. Well, and you should see the epic list in her bibliography. It's, let's see, gosh, it's like 14 pages. Oh, gosh, more than that. Almost 20 pages of bibliography. So any rabbit hole you would like to fall down, feel free to use the last half of the book um, (laughs) to run down those rabbit holes. I was very impressed by that. So That is like your go-to scenario. I do have a little note that I wrote here next to the title of the book, and I wrote, A Delightful Destruction of the Work of Plutarch and Justin, (laughs) who was the other guy that wrote all the fallacies about her. Speaking of Elizabeth Carney, she also wrote a book called Women and Monarchy in Macedonia. So that's another book. Uh, Olympias plays a role in it, but this is a more generalized view of the women of Macedonia. 
And then an old acquaintance. We have referred to the book Rejected Princesses many, many times during the course of this show, but that's not the book I'm going to recommend today. The same author, Jason Porath, also wrote a book called Tough Mothers, Amazing Stories of History's Mightiest Matriarchs. And not only does Olympias feature in this book, some of our old friends, uh, Madam C.J. Walker, Fannie Lou Hamer, appear in this book also. It is amazing. And there's a lot of people in here we have not covered. So let's consider this maybe a little um, idea book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think he, there's three books that he did, and any of them are excellent. I cannot recommend Jason Porath enough. Now, there are an infinite number of books that you could check out or buy about Alexander the Great, about his papa. I am going to recommend to you a little one and a big one. Um, because there's no sense giving you the list. Just, you know, go to the library, search Alexander the Great, and you're going to have like a cavalcade. So I recommend the following two. Before and After Alexander, The Legend and Legacy of Alexander the Great by Richard A. Billows is the little one. And then the big one, the one you could press flowers in, is called Philip and Alexander, Kings and Conquerors by Adrian Goldsworthy. So with those two in combination, I think you can get a very, very good picture of politically and militarily what was happening around Olympias. I'm going to throw another one in there. It's called By the Spear, Philip II, Alexander the Great, and the Rise and Fall of the Macedonian Empire by Ian Worthington. And that's the one that I used mostly to learn about them. And then just for an overview with a lot of pictures, there is a book by National Geographic called The Greeks and Illustrated History by Diane Harris Klein. And here's what I like this for. It's almost like those books, Daily Life in the Renaissance, Daily Life in the 1800s. This is kind of like Daily Life in the Greek era. And it tells you all about their writing and their food and their architecture and the monarchy and art and competitive spirit and all kind of different topics with a lot of sidebars and a lot of illustrations. Kind of a way to kind of get into her world. Oh, I love that. I used one called Creators, Conquerors, and Citizens, A History of Ancient Greece by Robin Waterfield. And what it was was short entries about anything that had to do with ancient Greece. It was easy to read. There was some pictures, but there was 470 pages of these short entries. So anything you want to know is going to be in that book, too. All right. As, okay. As to movies. Uh, Okay, so there is one main movie, Alexander the Great, starring every star of stage and screen (laughs) seems like you can think of. It's so crazy how many big giant stars are in this movie. And as we may have alluded to earlier in the show, neither of us, well, I don't necessarily want to speak for you, but like I found the movie ponderous and painful and I didn't enjoy my expenditure of time. <laughs> Actually, I think what you said was, what was it? Do you remember? Oh, let me page back in the text and see. We don't usually talk about what we're researching, but she just sent me this text like out of the blue. And I hadn't seen it yet because I was still reading and I wanted to get the real picture in my head first. And I thought it was going to be a reward for finishing all the hard work. But no, but no, it was a two night <laughs> non reward. Hold on. I'm still, gosh, I'm still going back, 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 back. 
It's three hours and 33 minutes, the version that's on Netflix right now. I don't know what to say. <laughs> okay, here's what I put. That movie was extremely ponderous. That's the only word I can think of that would describe the travesty that was the movie with Angelina Jolie in it. <laughs> Out loud, I even just said, what did I ever do to deserve this? <laughs> I think my response back to you was something like, how does a cast like this mess up a story like this? And I think I, we, I think we touched on this earlier. They just looked at too big of a story. And a lot of the things, if I didn't know the story of Alexander the Great, I would have been like, what are we watching? And why am I watching this man's head be stomped by an elephant? I mean, the gore is like off the charts. So I don't know what to tell you. Watch it if you want to, but um, you don't want to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, I just looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes. It's got a 16 <laughs> out of 100. That's not good. Um, no. Wow. There's actually a review by Peter Sabzinski on RogerEbert.com. This movie has been recut three times, and the last time was in 2014 for the 10th anniversary. And he says that this version is better than the original. Geesh. I know. Okay, some of these reviews are really bad. What is the director getting at other than suggesting that conquering the world is exhausting and psychologically damaging? <laughs> um, a dud. A baggy, incoherent, bloviating mess. Wow. Not good. Bloated, gl gleeful paranoia. Wow. Not good. Well, you know, do what you're going to do. Jared Leto was cute. He was, as I think I texted you also, the yes, only redeeming <laughs> member of the cast. Colin Farrell, who plays uh, Alexander, and Angelina Jolie, who was Olympias, were only a year apart in age. You know Weird. what? That happened during, um, what movie was that? That I was noticing how young the actress was that played the mom. I think it's, um, <laughs> don't judge me i think it was one of the spy kids movies <laughs> okay i watched them i'm with where you. the mom it might be like spy kids 2 or something i don't know but like the mom was literally like 25 and these kids were probably 15 <laughs> anyway nobody ever gets the ages right in no. casting so no. anyway a long assorted way to say no there's a very big open empty pathway for anyone who wants to make a better one of those, I think. And take just a small part of the story. Focus on a small part. Not only do you get a better movie, but you get a franchise. Because if that mm. does well, you can go on to another small part. Excellent. Movie advice from Susan Vollenreiter. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. So on to things available on the internet. Now, this could be and is, at least on my list, a wide-ranging assorted bit of rabbit holes. But one thing that I thought was quite interesting is there is a modern republic of Malasia, which is one of those little micronations people try to declare within the United States. Um, as a matter of fact, he has claimed a large part of the planet Venus also. So that's the level of clarity with which we are looking at the world. So a man has about 67 acres in Nevada that he has declared to be its own independent country. And he is the ruler. His wife is the first lady, etc. So I'll provide you a link with everything you need to know about the modern kingdom of Malasia. 
Excellent. There is a virtual tour of Samothrace that was made, by, um, like it looks like, like an intro to coding or computer class. So you can kind of fly through a rendering of what it looked like when it was still all up and not ruins. Um, more about Alexander as a person, just a little quick checklist about Alexander all about the ancient Olympics. And then I have a Greek gods primer, like an A to Z, everything you might need to know about all of the Greek gods, including photos, their favorite animals, etc. And then what happened when the Romans, centuries after Olympias, got a hold of Dionysus? Now, this is where the reputation for these events turns to the dark side. Uh, This is where the term bacchanalia came from. And also, more importantly, I'm not sure everybody was a willing and consenting participant. So that is what I mean by the dark side. And so I'll provide you a link with that. Now, do remember that happened centuries after Olympias was gone. However, that is what you think of when you think of Olympias in a cult, but that's not what was happening. Rarely do I listen to other podcasts as part of research, but this time I was traveling and it was so much easier than reading a book to listen. So I did listen to two. I picked two that were a single host and that covered uh, not just Olympias, but a lot more information. Dan Carlin, everybody knows him, Hardcore History. He has a Hardcore History addendum. It was episode nine. It's called Glimpses of Olympias. It is a three-hour glimpse. So, yeah, I know. And also this, I had not heard of this podcast before. It's History Cash. Uh, She had a three-parter, so another three hours on Olympias with lots of details of Philip and Alexander. I really liked her delivery, uh, but be forewarned, if sound effects are not your thing, you might want to skip this one. I did listen to some of her later episodes to see if she cut back on that a bit, and she did. So I am going to recommend that podcast, History Cash. All right. And that will do it for our coverage of Olympias. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you learned something today, tell a few of your friends, won't you? Or leave us a review on your favorite podcatcher. Oh, our next episode was supposed to be our London trip, History Extravaganza. And I have to tell you, we are so bummed that we've had to postpone that trip again. We haven't quite decided what we're going to do in its place. We may well go ahead and take a little vacation. Stand by. Don't miss Susan appearing on the History Channel on a series called The Machines That Built America. She is talking in the very first episode about the history of tractors. Now, usually I would tell you to check out the Pinterest board. And for this particular episode for Olympias, I am going to be honest with you, it's going to be a little thin. But I do add photos and links daily for past subjects. So there's always something to see. And let me know if you read Flowers in the Attic and if you know why I might have connected that with the accusations against Olympias. I'm sorry, I'm trying to be spoiler free But like every thrift store in America probably has copies of this book, if you dare read it. (laughs) Uh, Well, I don't know what our parents were thinking. The songs in the middle are Nocien Number 3 by La Reverie and Toward the Battle by Phil Ray. The song at the end is Killing the Drums by Horse Strike. See you next time.
Loud. 